welcome to The Book Cave. Today we're speaking with accomplished and award-winning author Gregory Day. Gregory, welcome to The Book Cave. Hi, Jen. Very nice to be here. It's great to have you. Near the garden. Yep, thank you. So, Gregory has so far published four amazing books. I would say unique, actually. I guess every book is unique, but perhaps yours are more unique than any others, even though you can't modify unique. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I'm fascinated. The first three of your books, Gregory, um, are set in the fictional town of Mangawak. Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a, a wonderful place on the southwest coast of Victoria in Australia. And I'm fascinated because you do such a great job of recreating landscape and um, this incredible sense of place. How much of Mangawak is you? Um, well, there are those people who say it does have some resemblance to the place where I live and where my family lives and has for a long time. So there's a lot of me in it, of course. So it's what I call, or what not I call, but what can be called psychogeography, oh. if you like. So your place is your place, even though it has an external objective life outside you, but in Inevitably, it is your place because it's it's laced. It's a palimpsest of your memories, your relationship to it, whether you came to it when you were born or whether you came to it later. You've created it partly in your own mind. So to write novels and fictionalise a place that you come from and live and have a relationship with is just to make that explicit, really, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. The first book, The Patron Saint of Eels, is a delicious book. It's it's gentle but insightful. And it's got this wonderful well, it's got many wonderful characters, but one in particular, um, Fra Ionio, mm. who is the patron saint of eels. Mm. And there's so much wisdom in this book. Um I think It deserves its awards. It's won several awards. But um, one of the things that I really found so interesting too is Fraronio said at one point, back then a disbeliever in miracles was a devil, a criminal, but here it is upside down. Believers in miracles, visionaries, are shut away in jails and hospitals. Mm. The modern world? Um, Yeah. Well, not... uh, Yeah. For me, I think I'm talk. I'm kind of talking about Australia, mm. and and I can't even really talk about Australia. I could talk about Victoria, and then I could say I can't even talk about Victoria. I could say I could talk about Southwest Victoria, but yeah, Australia um, as a place that was uh, for thousands of years kind of drenched in a metaphysical, mythological culture. And landscape, and then the Europeans came and stripped all that away. And so I think we were kind of left. We are the inheritors of a place that is doesn't really credit the unseen. Mm. You know, the fairies in the bottom of the garden, or whatever you want want to say. We we don't. We've made it all material. So that's part of the land grab that happened in. Victoria, and, and it's the, the consequences of that are that, yeah, we don't. Whereas back in when Frarionio was living in <clears throat> Calabria a couple of hundred years ago, well, that was a kind of uh, a different type of totalitarian re- regime where, you know, the church ruled, and as he says, you know, if you didn't believe in, or if, at least if you didn't say you believed in miracles, you were in trouble. But here, of course, yeah, it, it is. It's very interesting that it's reversed like that, mm. and so that's p- whole part of this whole thing with those books is trying to credit the unseen and to animate some of the spirit and some of the metaphysics of the place because it's still there. It's there, and we we have it in us. So to pretend it's not is kind of. Do you mm. think that's one of the things that's? I guess it's a quick way of saying it. That's wrong with the modern world is this disjunct between the unseen and the natural and and I mean is are we in Australia today doing ourselves a disservice by ignoring 
that extraordinary and, and long past that was in fact the Indigenous past of the people who lived here? Or are we actually overlaying that culture and that life with a sort of modern, you know, idealised vision or version of, of that time and that culture? Yeah, I think we're doing all of that. And it's incredibly complex. Mm. Um, but I just think, from my point of view as a writer, mm. writing in English, in Australia, in Wallarong country, if you like, and so I'm writing with a language that doesn't come from here, it was imposed upon here. Yeah. And so as soon as you start writing about landscape in Australia, you're immediately in a political realm and you're in a, a very... Um, I think immediately quite complicated realm. And so to make it simple on the page requires a lot of thinking and walking and, and reading and reflecting, talking to historians, just trying to work out what has happened. And so, um, so therefore we're, as a writer, um, trying to find a voice to talk about that stuff in. I think that's one of the things. The culture as a whole really doesn't have a voice for, this, for the unseen, whereas England has a voice for the unseen, even England. America certainly does. Now, there's all kinds of excesses that happen with religion. We know that. So it's no, I'm not saying that, you know, we've all got to become religious or spiritual or whatever. But it's in us as humans because we don't know where we came from and we don't know where we're going to go to ultimately. And so the unseen is a huge part of our life. Mm. And so to write about it in English in this place is just, it's just, it's my obsession. Mm. But it seems to me that in particularly in these three books, you've actually done a really good job of bridging that gap. That in fact, these books, which when you read them are on one level very, simple, delightful stories about ordinary people and their lives in, in Mangawak, mm. um, doing things that we all can identify with, relate to. But there is always this sense when I read your work that there is this much deeper, you've achieved this extraordinary depth and, and sense of otherness that is somehow imbued in the writing, perhaps in the spaces between the words. I don't quite know how you do that and perhaps you could tell us as best as you can. But I'm also, mm. r r tell me about that, because I find that fascinating mm. that these books are mm. so layered. Mm. Um, well, you're a book lover, Jen, so you know a book is not read until it's reread. And once it's reread, then it has to have depth. Mm. Otherwise, it's boring. Mm. First time, narrative, plot, momentum, we can get through. Second time, it's got to have layers, mm. I think. So that's part of the um, craft to a certain extent of it. Um, yes. The thing that's coming to mind is a writer I really love is John McGarn, an Irish novelist mm. and short story writer. Very great writer, I think. And he, you know, in Ireland when you grew up, you were taught Gaelic in the schools and so forth. And it was just in the mix so he, he, he could speak Gaelic, but he never wrote in Gaelic. The cadences of Gaelic were underneath everything he ever did, but there was never any sign of it. And so there's a kind of geology that goes on with books. Yeah. Now, I can't really explain that sense you're talking about in those books, like the geology, other than to say um, often in writing uh, you suggest you don't declare good writing. Yes. So that's something I'm aware of. Um, and maybe it, maybe it's got something to do with the, it's an unfashionable word, but the passion I have for that place, which can't really be held on a page, mm. you know. So you've got to work out what can be held on a page. And most of what you feel can't if that makes any sense. It does. It makes a lot of sense. But how mm, – so how aware are you when you're actually in the writing process? So when I read your work, mm. it, it, it comes across as effortless and I have visions of you just being able to write entire pages mm. without having to stop 
when yeah. I write, it's 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 often mm. challenging and difficult, and it takes you know half a day to write a paragraph mm. that I'm happy with. But your writing comes across as just sort of this effortless, mm. outward flowing. Not even stream of consciousness, but there's an element of that, perhaps. I don't know. But it's not stream of consciousness no. in style at all. No, not at all. No. no. It's, it's beautifully structured, actually. But I'm just sort of trying to get a sense of how. Yeah. Are you self-aware when you're writing or is it just Oh, I think organic? so. I think it's one of those things where you, um, there's, a, there's only a, I mean, you're writing for, if you wanted to quantify it in time, um, you're actually writing for not much time in your life. What, but you're thinking about mm. what you're going to do kind of always. Mm. And so when you go to do it, that um, all that unconscious synaptic kind of speed is all in there behind it. So all the thinking and all the behaving and all the is all there. So um, it's definitely all, all the reflection and all the complexity should be there. But then you've got to sing. You know, you, you, you can't... Um, rant or you can't you know kind of explicate it's they're novels they're not essays so you've got to sing and so singing you you just sing you know and that's fascinating because you're a musician Mm. um and also a poet Mm. and i think that's those are very strong themes in your work yeah not just overtly but there is a musicality in your writing i think and the poetry that comes through um very well and and music i find is a consistent theme yeah. in your books yeah, and you say there's a wonderful description of shadows in the patron saint of eels um where you talk about them being so sweet but so sad mm. because they could not lend their decoration to the original ground mm. and that's about the fact that we have created this very material world on top of the natural world and we've therefore denied not just animals and birds and plants, their place, but also something as unthought of, I think, as shadows. Yeah. And you're really good mm. at doing that. And I wonder, though, mm. music is a theme, poetry, but also the land is this extraordinary, consistent theme in your books and so important. Do you still think that, do you think that the land still exerts a force in today's world? in the way that you write about in your books? I think it's a complete, it's a, it, I think it rules the world. And, I mean, in the most unconscious way, people, mm-hmm. are, their lives are completely determined by landscape. And I wouldn't say natural uh, landscape, I'd say cultural landscape too these days. There's a slight difference. But, you know, fundamentally, and this is all the thing with the climate change issue, mm-hmm. I mean, fundamentally, it's the ground we walk on. So everything that really basically matters comes from it. Like artists, painters like Cezanne would Mm. say, you know, nature is the teacher. Nature's only the teacher because nature is what we are. Like this is the element we're in. We're like, you know, a goldfish in in water. Mm. We are in this thing. So... But because it's there, it's it's background. Like in, it's it's often treated as scenery, so it's background, not foreground, in the way we see the world. So we walk on the ground. We're not thinking about the fact we're walking on the ground all the time. We're breathing the air, mm. but the air is unseen. Mm. It's invisible. But do anything to the air, and we're in big trouble. But we can't see the air. So this is the thing. The con- you have to be conscious of what you can't see because. The air is the thing we breathe and we can't see it. Between you and me, there's all this stuff that we can't see. So, oh, yeah, I think it's, 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 um, and the great thing for me as a kind of the more lyrical side of me is mm. that I love, I love the natural landscape <clears throat> because it's not something that man made. It's not something that us humans with all our flaws and faults in each of us, we know. We didn't make it. I mean, we are kind of affecting it and changing it, mm. but ultimately, originally, it's not ours. We did not make it. And that I just, I need that, you know, because it, it's a romantic view of it because, you know, you say you go out and, oh, well, it's, you know, I don't have to think about what we've done and what I've done. But um, 
Of course you do, but that in itself is something that people need. I mean, look in hospitals or schools or, you know, nature is used just continually to make people feel a little bit better. Um, but yeah. again, we've created this massive disjunct from nature. Mm. People living in cities that are becoming more and more urbanised, particularly in Australia, which has always been this extraordinary landscape. Mm. Um, and for a long time, even the, the kind of urban landscape <clears throat> was a, a place of gardens, bigger spaces. Um, and yeah. in the last 20 years in, in yeah. Victoria, yeah. we are reducing the space yeah. People are getting more and more crowded, and so we're actually cutting people off more and more and more from the landscape, from the organic world, from mm. from nature itself. Mm. Surely, this—I mm. mean, it's it's complex, I yeah. guess, because people need to live somewhere. But I think it's a mistake, and it's being um, well, without you know, it's being used. It gets commodified, so mm, it gets colonized yeah. by the neoliberal corporate world. To, they use it to sell. Yeah. You know, they'll create a housing estate and they'll, all the terms they use to brand it are all terms of the thing they are destroying. Yes. They're all natural terms. Yeah. I mean, you have a football stadium which is named with an Aboriginal word and you get rid of that and you call it, you name it after a real estate agent. You know, things like that that happen. So, <clears throat> yeah, it's definitely been a, a really nasty time in terms of that just since the fall of the Berlin Wall, I think it's just like, you know, I say, so communism doesn't work, that doesn't work. It gave these freaks carte blanche <coughs> to just go excessively into this profit-driven way of living life. That's fascinating. You know? I've never thought or heard of the, the Berlin Wall, that fall, that moment. Well, there was a kind of moment. Yeah. yeah, there was a battle and then it was like, well, you guys, no, that's all over. You, your wall's, it's gone. Right. So we win. So we just do what we like now and, of course... We're now what nearly twenty years down the track yeah, from that, and yeah. we are we are really discovering that that doesn't work either. No, and the planet the planet yeah. is paying for it, and therefore and we, we will, will pay yeah, for it. That's right. <coughs> because of course we're not separate from nature; we are nature. Yeah. So, hmm. one of the things too that comes through in your books, not just the land but the ocean, and you have a great sense, I think, of both the land and the sea as though you yourself saw more than most people and that you understand at a level that many people, as you've said, don't, I think. I think you're seeing a lot more, and that's why I think your books are really important. <clears throat> you talk in The Patron Saint of Eels of a great ancestral road within the ocean. What mm. do you mean by that? <clears throat> well... The, mm, the ocean is, um, I'm not seeing anything that other people aren't seeing. I think the job of the writer, though, is just to find the words mm. for it. I really, really don't, I'm really sure I'm not seeing anything that other people aren't seeing. It's just that when you're writing, your job is you bring it into the light, I suppose. You find some kind of description for that internal world. Well, I think you're making people think, certainly when you read your books, think of things that perhaps they haven't thought of before. Yeah. Seeing things in ways they haven't seen. Well, there's before. a literacy involved in landscape. Yeah. So that's definitely something that I'm really aware of. A literacy in terms of plants and animals and clouds and ocean and so forth. But then there's another literacy in terms of atmosphere and... Um, the way a particular person in the place you live is comfortable in a particular spot or reminds you of a particular spot. So that, that's something that because I, you know, love the place where I live, I've become very interested in it and I think the history of it's very interesting. I've spent my life becoming literate in it. Right. And I am... Um, I've come to understand that, you know, regional literature, if you like, is something that Australia is only <clears throat> just coming to understand. Australia's been obsessed with itself as a nation at the <coughs> expense, I think, of little things like, once again, like if you're in Ireland or England or Spain or Colombia, you might write about that particular hill. Mm. But, or you know, there is a sense of, County by county has a literature. Mm. But here, I mean, once again, going back, 
the Aboriginal map of Australia, 250 languages, it was very, very, very much a regional thing. And this country is not the same country as, as you know, if you were over in Gippsland or something. Um, so <clears throat> that literacy becomes more and more specific. But the, the idea, and this is the thing with, with these books, is to make that regional, that local, and to turn it into the universal kind of thing because it's a human experience always. So Australians might love, you know, magic realism from Colombia or from India. They might like, you know, vernacular voices from Ireland or wherever in their literature. But they find it hard, harder to understand that you, there is that kind of element going on here too. Mm. And um, I'm interested in that. But that's something too that you actually have achieved what I think is a relatively rare thing, which is an Australian voice. And perhaps that's because you do pay your respect or give pay your dues perhaps to the Indigenous element <coughs> that is here <coughs> in your part of Australia, but also to the colonised mm. voice of yeah. Australia. And I think yeah. that's a real achievement. So I find the three books too of the Mangoac series, Eels is very gentle, but Ron McCoy's Sea of Diamonds mm. I think is... Having read it now a couple mm. of times, I, I think it's really got a lot to do with death. Yeah, it has. It's the heart of the matter, that one. Yeah. That book. I mean, I think of them, when I set out to do these three books, it was like, well, I'm going to, it's, there's many different ways of looking at this situation in this place. So I'm going to do three books that take a slightly different approach. Okay, yeah. So the patron saint of eels was um, what the, what, some people have called it wisdom literature. It's a fable. Mm. It's a way into the unseen. Then the Ron McCoy's Sea of Diamonds was like, well, let's do a, almost a saga, a Thomas Hardy type of approach in the landscape. And then the third book in that, in that set, The Grand Hotel, was about, I suppose you could call it farce. You say, well, mm. there's this, there's this deep feeling, there's this kind of tragic loss, but in the end, you know, and if if you are kind of interested in in being somehow loyal to Australian temperament, you've got to laugh, mm. you've got to see the absurdity, you know, and it's kind of surreal. As you say, God's a comedian. God's a comedian, and, and actually, I yeah. I really enjoyed that aspect. I, I, yeah. Each of the three books really does give you something quite different, and there's a different sort of. Ron McCoy's Sea of Diamonds has an edge to it yeah. that the other two don't. Yeah. And I also really enjoy, although it has its humour too. Yeah. And I love the bit, um, the Iridex. Yeah. Can you tell us about the Iridex? Is it is it real? It is real. It's real. Yeah, no, it's real. Please explain the Iridex. So that's from the Grand Hotel, and the Grand Hotel kind of one of the things it does it it it's um it's a it's a spoof on kind of the weird excesses of tourism mm. and how they clash with local communities. Mm. And so I looked at all these tourism management manuals going back, right back, because, of course, what happens in Australia, say, along this Great Ocean Road area, mm. has already happened in Italy 200 years ago, in America 100 years ago. It's already this, is all, this industrial process of selling, upselling this beautiful place it's already been through it all there. We're just kind of getting to it now. And so there's a lot of documentation of it. Say a place like Venice. I mean, the history of tourism mm. in Venice goes back a millennium, you know. So there is a, a document called the Index of Local Irritation to Tourism, the Iridex, which was in a tourism management manual the, and it was written in the 70s. And it is a, an index basically charting what happens in a small beautiful little maybe a fishing town or something when it started to be promoted as tourism so they get tourism tourists coming into the town strangers you know yeah. and so there's a there's a chart there a bullet list of what happens when that like the first stage is you know they they get excited because you know there's new people around and and basically it goes through the different stages between when the excitement starts where it starts to get a bit annoying, then it starts to drive them mad. And in the end, there I think the last stage is something like resignation. Now, 
and that's in the tourism management manual. So what the tourism management manual is saying to tourism operators, this is, this is the resistance you're going to encounter. These are the reactions you're going to encounter when you try to do this in this small town. So you're going to get this, this, and this, but in the end it's okay because they'll just be resigned to it in the end and you'll be fine, you'll be able to do what you like. <laughs> now, that's a true document. It's also crazy, but it's true. And it's, So the Grand Hotel's got a mixture of reality and, and myth and so forth and that's... It certainly yeah. does. But in, the, in uh, Ron McCoy's Sea of Diamonds, you have this wonderful phrase where you say, the dead make the living think. Uh-huh. And that really resonated yeah. with me because I do think that's actually really true, particularly as you move through life, you get a bit older and, mm. of course, more and more people around you die yeah. and you're faced with your own mortality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's, mm. you know, men, oh, well, mm. I shouldn't talk about the ending of it, of course, but there's different kinds of death in Ron McCoy's Sea of Diamonds and it's beautifully realised, I think, mm. Um it's kind of almost a panacea in a way. Mm. There's a lot of that in that book, I think. But there's mm. tremendous amounts of wisdom in your books. Do you see yourself as a wise person? No, of course not. <laughs> um, so, I think there's an incredible amount of wisdom in people all the time. Mm. I could have conversations every day with people and they'd say things and if they had a title or if they were a famous person and they said it on television, well, people would be banging on about it for ages, but they're just saying it and they're kind of nobody and nobody notices and it just drifts away on the wind. People are saying wise, people are living wisely and unwisely all the time. So I just like to think of it as um, within the books as um, there, is a, there is a part of me that is really, really passionate and a little bit urgent about us getting back into balance. Mm-hmm. So that drives some of the message. But the other side is just giving voices air, you know, common wisdoms, not, you know, not particularly eloquent stuff, but, uh, yeah. Well, I think you certainly achieve that. Mm. Do you think we will get back into balance? Have we ever achieved balance, do you think? Was there a time in human history when perhaps we, we had that opportunity for balance and we just went in a different direction? Well, I think we're at a pretty interesting point now because if you look at human history and then you look at, like I say, reach the point of industrialisation, and what we're dealing with now is that. So we're dealing with coal. Mm. That's what we're dealing with. In terms of global warming, we're dealing with coal. And coal is, what is it? It's Dickens. It's Charles Dickens. It's, It's that industrial moment. And, of course, time is, you know, there's all kinds of time, but this big arc of history, this moment, we're at the kind of end of the industrial moment where we're understanding, oh, that coal, yeah, we've used too much of that and it's having this effect, so we have to change mm. um, So to get that balance. And it's just because we have a finite resource or, and, a, and a, an atmosphere with limits, mm. we understand now, some of us do, that things have to change. So but there's tremendous resistance to that change. There is and the balance is about population and 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 the you know the technology. So as a as a kind of as a as a species we've never had to had to as far as I know deal with the idea of balance in the mo- more in the same way that we do now. I think this is this is really the moment. I mean I look at my kids and I think well yeah this is the moment. Well, you talk in your books, you say things like, um, even this late in the human story, yeah. do you see us as having an ending? As a, We're late in the human story, so... Mm. I kind of think there's no beginning and no end to everything, so I don't... The Great Wheel. Yeah, okay. but maybe, maybe, in, maybe in terms of this iteration of human beings... I don't know. I hope not. I mean, I don't. If I, to be honest, in a way, I was going to say, if I didn't have children, I wouldn't really care. But that's just being really kind of small-minded. Mm, mm, mm. But I think that um, it could be late in this particular story. Interesting. And I, yeah. But there's a lot of work being done now. 
by people like George Monbiot in England and James Boyce in Australia about saying, well, we keep trashing humanity, mm. but what we've got to also understand is we are so altruistic as a species. We are so insightful. We are so generous. We are so giving. We care and empathise about all mm. kinds of things we don't have to. We've got to start redefining ourselves to ourselves and, and think about ourselves in that way and and emphasise those strengths so we can get out of this hole. Well, that's interesting too because that does seem to be the journey of quite a lot of your characters. Mm. And we come to your fourth book, mm. The Archipelago of Souls. I think to some degree that is the journey that your characters here are actually going through with. It's this re that's having true. experienced the horrors yeah. of the of the war yeah. and then finding, as Wes finds himself on King Island, yeah. having been on Crete and having this mm. appalling experience, um, that that is in fact the journey, this discovery, this reshaping, reimagining of oneself as a better person than perhaps one thought they were. Is that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's uh, I think you're right there, Jenna. That, that's an arc of a, um, when one of the old, when I was writing that book, I, I kind of started to think about, well, the returned soldier, mm. which is really a common theme in white Australia mm. and black Australia, is kind of almost the oldest story that there is. Mm. It's Homer and, yes. it's, and it's all the way through. And what that is is it's a person, generally a man, because it's this kind of war that men fight, that goes into this mythological battle and looks darkness in the face, looks death in the face, does things that uh, that they didn't think they could do, both, both evil and good, lives life in an intensification like mm. life seldom is. War is this intensification. Everything is heightened. And then, boop, come back to Penelope and Telemachus and how do we do that? How do we just tip our hat at the post office and get on with it, you know? And so the reconstruction of the self, the mm. self gets torn apart and then it has to be put back together. And and things like the altruism and things like the better parts of oneself have to be discovered to put that darkness into balance. And I think that's true. I think with Wes that is that. Yes. That is that story. And you've, you've realised it again. I think with great insight, but I find that fascinating too. Because if you were, you've never fought in a war, no, and yet to me this is one of the really insightful, such an awareness of of the reality of war on that moment and what that must have been like, and you you portray that so well. But again, so that's just an achievement of the imagination. Mm. How much research went into the archipelago of Souls? Because. The previous three books are in a place and roughly in a time that I know. Mm. So my life was my research mm. in a way. This one, yeah, Crete, the Second World War, mm. King Island. I spend a lot of time in King Island, but I've never lived there as such. So, yeah, a lot of research. So it took a long time, look, about five years, and a lot of that was just, first of all, going, spending time. Because it's not just about reading books. I mean, you have to read I'm not a military kind of, I've never been interested in military things, so I had to catch up a hell of a long way because there's all kinds of train spotters out there. When they read a book about a battle of Crete, they're going to be there looking for your mistakes. Plus, you just want it to be real. So, yeah, it was a lot of research. And you, but you had that wonderful experience you wrote about um, tea and marmalade. with. T- oh, right, yeah. And that Hotel Dommer. In the Hotel Dommer in Crete, yeah. That must have been fascinating, that meeting was. the two sisters that who'd was. actually been there and experienced it. That was. So how early in the process of researching this book did you meet those women? Uh, quite late in the process. That's what I thought. If I had have met them earlier in the process, I think they probably would have featured in the yeah. book because that was such a compelling day. So I was I was very friendly with the curator of the Museum of Crete in Heraklion. He's a great guy and he... I said to him I was going up to Hanya, which is another um, place in Crete where they had central kind of things in the battle. I said, to what should I go? When I go to Hanya, you know, what, what should I do, Costa? Where should I go to kind of – I don't really – it's not information I'm after. It's atmosphere. It's mm-hmm. feeling. He said, ah, 
So he drew me this mud map of this kind of hotel, this old, quite grand hotel, but which was now in a kind of suburb of Hanya, kind of on its own, right on the sea, though. And he said, go out there. I'm not going to tell you anything. Just go out there. Go to that place. So I went there on a Sunday. It was the anniversary of the battle. Just happened to be real. Maybe it just happened. Maybe I made that happen. But And I went out there on a Sunday morning, run, you know, very quiet, and walked in, into this hotel, and there was a young woman and an old woman sitting behind the concierge counter. And they said, can, can we help you? You know, and I said, well, uh, well, not really. I've just come here because, you know, this hotel is important in the, and I started to kind of give them a bit of a spiel about the Battle of Crete <laughs> in the most ridiculously presumptuous way. And the old woman just kind of nodded and said, yes, I know I was there. <sighs> You know, because I said something like it's the 75th anniversary. Yes, I know I was there. I said, oh, oh. So her and her sister had grown up in this hotel as their house. Mm. And then when the Germans invaded, the Germans took that house as their uh, headquarters on the island. And these these two sisters who still live in that hotel, they were six, eight, nine years old at that time. And she just briefly said something about it. And I went, oh, and... Something something happened and she said, she paused and she said, well, would you like to come up and have a cup of tea and we can talk about it? I went, yeah. So her and her sister, we went upstairs into this beautiful room, spent the whole day with these two older women, beautiful women, told me just so generous. Yes. You know. Um, and they were great friends with the Italian writer Antonio Tabucchi, who I also love, and he goes there where he died, but he, he used to go there every year oh. and oh. they would make marmalade, which he particularly loved. And so they made this marmalade for me and they gave me some jars to take. Oh. And so I ha- it was just really moving, beautiful time. So I wrote this piece in The Australian about it, which then people made them aware of in Crete. So then we had this, they were just so touched by it. It was really, really lovely. But... Those incredible intersections of moments yeah, that, was... that, that occur in life, yeah. I think are, to me, they're kind of gifts from the gods. Yeah. And you have to, and it's wonderful that you wrote about it because then you've encapsulated it yeah. and you've kept it. So it's there. Forever. It's something about the temperament with which you come to these things. Like I think even though I was being ridiculously presumptuous to them, they must have seen, they must have thought, oh, he's just a poor little innocent who needs educating. <laughs> And so they just, it was okay for them to do it and we got on really well. So then by spending a day with them, it would be worth, you know, spending three, five years in a library reading books about Crete. That one day just taught me more. And I couldn't use any of it because it was kind of too late. But the sense that it gave me really helped. But it also must have affirmed what you'd written It did actually. And that, therefore, is almost, that's a gift in itself that it you, you've you come to this place and you've written this book and then almost after the yeah. fact you meet the people who were there, who were the eyewitnesses, and they tell you that really what you've written is, is good and, and right. And, and Kostas Mamalakis, who's the director of the museum, you see, he was a, it was a setup. He probably knew that we'd probably get on okay and that yeah, this might yeah. happen. And he'd already set me up with... Um, he asked me up to the museum one day in Iraklion, took me out onto this veranda and there's this old man. And this old man was the son of one of the main resistance fighters in the war who had seen his father shot in the firing squad. And just before his father had been shot, his father was screaming and it wasn't like to save me. Like All he was screaming about was take my boy away so he doesn't see oh. this. And they didn't and he saw it. And then Costas put me and him together. Beautiful old man, oh. you know, Who things like never that. Never forgotten this searing moment. Just in his completely life. formative, and still, still the biggest thing in his life. And um, and so when you when you're somehow bearing witness to that material, once you meet people like that and spend some time with them, and I spent some time with some Australian soldiers who were there too. I mean, it does become some kind of responsibility, as the, mm. as Yates says, in dreams begin responsibilities, and that's part of the process. So for me, it kind of usually a novel comes from a lyric impulse. That's what I was. A, an impulse to sing, 
And then you go into the territory and then it becomes a responsibility as well, I think. Okay. Yeah. I see that. Maybe. No, no, I think, Mm. I think. So I would say about your books, and I want to hear about your new book, all your books make the reader feel as though you're telling true stories, Mm -hmm. stories of people that you knew or you know or even your own story. And I think there's this extraordinary sense of it's almost as if you kind of go, of course, yes, like there's a recognition Mm. when you read your Right. Oh, that's good. Mm. Which I think is really um, powerful. And one of the things that I think there's so many moments in your books where there's just moments of wisdom and insight and things that I think are important for people to read and understand mm. in their life as you go through this mortal, mm. on this mortal journey. Mm. Um, but one of them that really resonated with me was you say, what indeed was the point of life when we are denied the opportunity to give? Mm. And I think perhaps that's still so alive in the world, but it's not what we see Mm. and hear as the really loud kind of mm. cacophonic message that mm. we're constantly getting in our modern world through social media and, you know, we're getting so much more of the kind of mm. materialist taking negative. Narcissistic stuff. Yeah. Mm. Narcissism, which has mm. become such a mm. a word now, mm. you know, used to yeah. just be a, a Greek myth. Yeah. And now it's actually, now you know, people talk about, oh, that person's so narcissistic. Yeah, narcissism's mainstream. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, terrifying. But I also think, Jen, without, you know, wanting to gild the lily or be Mm. a Pollyanna, I I also think we are getting a lot of good stuff, but Mm. we just don't notice it. We've got a habitual, we, it's like, you know, they say happiness writes white. So the hardest story to write is a happy story because there's no drama. Yes. You need tension. Yes. We're kind of conflict addicted by nature. So the media is certainly conflict addicted. They need a story. There needs to be conflict for a story so they'll create conflict, will receive conflict, will be compelled by it, so forth. But in between, there's all these other things which aren't as dramatic, Mm. which I still think we're getting. There's all these good things people are saying and doing. And I do think we say, but we just take them for granted a bit. I don't think we notice. We notice them. Isn't that to do with the extraordinary increase in the pace of life? and the things that we're bombarded with and the amount of information we're overwhelmed with, the idea that you can just sit. When did you last sort of see someone Mm. just sitting on a train or a tram or a bus just sitting and thinking, just sitting and quietly in repose sort of, you know, or reading a book even? Everyone's on their phone, you know, on their iPad or on their computer, you know. So I I think perhaps there's beginning to be a kickback. There is, there certainly is. You know, people are certainly disengaging, they're shutting down Facebook. I met a young woman just recently who shut down her Facebook account. And and I said, oh, you know, how's that? And she said, it's wonderful, I've got so much more time. Yeah. When people say, younger people ask me about writing Mm. and they say, you know, how do you, you, do you have any advice or whatever? Yeah. And I only ever say one thing. I say, well, count how many hours in the week you spend looking at a screen. Yeah. And cut out half those hours and spend those that half of that time, spend that writing, and that's all you have to do. Do you write on a computer or do you write no, by I hand? No, I write by hand. By hand. Mm. Notebooks, pad, yeah, paper? Yeah, notebooks. Wow. Pen? Pen. Not a fountain pen? No, not a fountain pen. Not a quill? I'm not a complete dancer. These, <laughs> I love these uni balls. Oh. That's, that, that'll do. I like uni balls, but yeah. I like Enagels better. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My pen of choice. Yeah. yeah. It's funny how we have that. So I write very fast <laughs> with a pen and then, I, and then it gets transcribed into a computer and then I start editing. You transcribe it into the computer? No, a friend of mine does. Really? Mm. That's And has done throughout. Male or female? Female. How fascinating. Mm. And does she have a, a a job of making commentary or anything as she goes or is she just a Oh, she's absolute, a bloody good reader. Nuts but, and bolts. Nuts but as she would say, typing my handwriting is not kind of conducive to deep reading. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much a graphological exercise. <laughs> but, yeah, so I, yeah, so I write by hand. I write, um, I do quite a lot of stuff, quite a lot of literary criticism and stuff, and I do all mm. that on a computer. Oh, right. But when it comes to singing, I do it by hand. Okay. I find that the process of thought to word on paper 
is different. It is different that's, from that's right. a computer yeah. to. Uh, but plus, there's the thing you know in the Camus Albert Camus novel, The Plague. There's mm. a character in that who wants to write a novel, and he never gets past the first sentence because he can't get the first sentence right. <laughs> He wants it perfect, and of course, nothing's ever perfect. So he never gets past the first sentence. If I wrote a novel in on a computer, I wouldn't be able to finish it because what? I'd be in the first paragraph, moving things around all the ah. time. But when you write on paper, you can do a few scratch outs and all the rest of it. But there's a limit to what you can do. Then you just have to go to the next bit and mm. keep going. Well, that is actually how most books and great books were written. Yeah, you know, Jane Austen wrote. Yeah, by, well, hand, wrote by hand, um, you know, and and there weren't m- multiple copies, and uh, you know, when books were lost in the fire, that was that was that very was much it. often it. I was reading about Sylvia Plath burning Ted Hughes, making a bonfire of <gasps> Ted Hughes notebooks and uh, manuscripts, and also getting his fingernail cuttings from around the house and throwing them into the bonfire as well when he'd been, you know, particularly oh. naughty or something. So they were gone. When did it? That's it. Well, of course, uh, Franz Kafka left instructions. Yes, manuscripts to be destroyed, and, and his executor didn't do it. No, luckily for us. Well, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. It's a good philosophical conundrum that one. Georgette Hare has burned all of her manuscripts except one. Really? Yep. Yeah. Because uh, when I asked her son about it, um, because she was by and large a flat dweller. Yeah. There wasn't room. No, there wasn't and room. And so, but she would actually burn them as soon as she got the proofs back from the publisher. Yeah. She would destroy the original mm. manuscript, which I find really fascinating. It is fascinating. Yeah. That's someone who really believes in the art of illusion. Oh. So the finished thing. Yeah. And, you know, it can't be sullied by the process. Mind you, her first drafts were often her final drafts. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, pretty much. Imagine now, that. this new book. Imagine that. The Sand Archive. A Sand Archive. Tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Well, um, a Sand Archive. So I'm in the middle of writing, um, of course, there was the Mangawak three books. Now I'm in the middle of writing another set of three books, of which Archipelago of Souls was the first one. Right. Now Archipelago of Souls deals with the person who comes from Western Victoria and goes to Crete, Greece, and then comes back. This next one, a Sand Archive, is someone from Western Victoria who goes to France and comes back. And this story revolves around this, um, the May, Paris, May 1968 student demonstrations, student worker demonstrations. And my character is someone, he's a civil engineer who's study, who's working on sand dune stabilisation along the Great Ocean Road. And at that point, if you wanted to do research on that, the place you went is France because they did a lot of, in the revolutionary era, they did a lot of important um, sand dune stabilisation work in the south of France. So Paris was the place you go. So he wanted to do, um, advance this kind of work in sand dune stabilisation. There wasn't much work that had been done in Australia. So he goes to Paris in 1968 with his head in the sand <laughs> and he's in this moment, this great intellectual cultural moment yeah. in Paris in 1968. Quite um, a contrast from Culture, nature, yeah. nature, culture. Fascinating. Australia, Europe. And then he comes back. After going through this experience, he comes back and we watch him changed and, and returning. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So. Wonderful. Well, we'll look forward to that. When's that out? That's out in May. Of 2018. 2018. Oh, to coincide with the anniversary. It does happen to coincide with the 50th anniversary. Fantastic. Well, great. I'll look forward to that. Mm. So it's been Mm. wonderful having you in the book cave, Gregory. Thanks a lot, Jen. Beautiful to be here amongst all the books. And we'd like to know your three books of choice for our um, virtual time capsule, the books that you would leave the world a thousand years from now, Mm. the three books that you think they ought to, people ought to read. Okay, well, I thought a bit about this and I could have gone for the the big epics that have had a great influence on me, but I decided, given the nature of my work and what it's all about, um, I decided to pick three intensely local books. So the three books are... These books are very hard to find, by the way. Oh. They're not in print. Okay. But they're very special to me. Great. um, And they've really informed a lot of what I've done. So... 
The first one is a book by an um, ethnobotanist called Beth Gott. Um, who's a very important uh, woman in this room. who's done a lot of work on Koori or Aboriginal plants oh. in Australia, which is um, one of my interests. And so the book is called Victorian Koori Plants, and it goes through all the native plants in our landscape wow. and what they are, what they can be used for, what were they, what they were and still are and increasingly are again being used for in terms of medicine, food and so forth in the landscape. The second book is a book by an English uh, detective writer called Arthur Upfield oh, yes. who came out to Australia in the early 20th century and travelled around Australia stay in a place for six months, write a detective story in, a, in that place with his uh, Aboriginal detective called Boney. Boney. Mm. Um, and he wrote, he came to the coast where I live in 1952 to the town where I live and spent six months there and wrote a book there, a detective story there called The Clue of the New Shoe. Oh, great. Which is... Of its time, and Arthur Upfield is of its time, mm. you know. Mm. For those who are completely politically correct, it will be challenging. But it's very, very good at capturing a very kind of unfashionable middle 20th century Australia and really good on atmosphere. Mm. So that book's called The Clue of the New Shoe. And um, the third book is a book written by a cray fisherman in Lawn. He'd lived... His whole life in Lawn, um, cray fishing, and then did a bit of scallop fishing in Port Phillip Bay. And he's a very intelligent person who, at the end of his life, decided to write a memoir. And he wrote a book called Feel the Sea Wind, which, in my estimation, it's there's a book in Australia called A Fortunate Life oh, yes. by A.B. Facey, yes. which is kind of like an inland farming memoir mm. of real kind of a real life. This is kind of like the coastal version of that in a way. It's a beautiful book and it's my local area, like the Arthur Upfield and the Beth Gott books are, and it's a treasure. Not in print anymore, but it's a real treasure. So if I was going to put three books in the capsule, Fabulous. they'd be from here. Well, that's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> a gift to a the gift, world. A gift. Thank you, Gregory. A gift to the world. Local to the universal. Wonderful. Love <laughs> it. Looking forward to following up and finding them and reading them. Mm. Sounds great. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jeff. Great to have you Thank in the you. book cave. Gregory Day. In the Book Cave was recorded at the Mance with the assistance of 94.7 FM Geelong and produced by Corner Shop Studios, Jam Lab and Creative Geelong.